This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me is Colleen and Nicole. How you guys doing? I'm good. We're surviving the San Francisco heat wave, and all the portable air conditioners are sold out in our area yeah. because we checked, and they're all gone. Uh, Nicole is back for another episode, though, which is great. How are you doing tonight, Nicole? I'm doing really well. School starts next week, so the summer is officially over for me, but I am uh. ready and looking forward to a new school year. So I'm good. Thanks for having me back. What have you been up to, Eileen? Oh, same as Colleen. I am dying in the heat wave. Um, SF actually shattered the record high temps. It's 106 yesterday on Friday. So we have no AC. And the reason why we complain so much about the heat here, just so you guys know, is we're used to cool summers. There's a saying, um, somebody who loves San Francisco said, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. So just to give you an idea of what the weather I'm used to is. (laughs) My office building was built in 1902, so there's no air conditioning. Yeah. My roommate has been laughing about how bad I'm handling this heat wave, but I think the weather goes back to normal next week. Right. But now, let's get on to the show. Catherine Knight certainly earned her nickname, the Black Knight. The crime she committed was so brutal that she was the first woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole in Australia. And the details of the case are so gruesome and disturbing, but pertinent to the case itself. We will give a warning before these details are discussed. When I was little, I wanted to be a dinosaur digger. What I meant by that was an archaeologist. I loved Indiana Jones. I dreamt of traveling the world, experiencing other cultures, and mostly the adventures I would have. As a child and early teen, this was my dream job. Others may have dreamt of being a doctor, a firefighter, actor, maybe a musician, because when we're little, we believe that our future career will be a reflection on what kind of person we want to be when we grow up. And who doesn't dream of a job that is glamorous or one that will lead to wealth or something that is considered important, which is why I doubt that working at an abattoir isn't too high on the list of dream jobs. However, When Catherine Knight left school at the age of 15 and was hired at the local slaughterhouse, she was thrilled and proclaimed widely and loudly that spending the day as an offal remover was a dream come true. Personally, I found this to be a little odd, but since the local slaughterhouse was her town's largest employer and it's where her father worked, I can somewhat understand her pride over being hired. It was her enthusiasm for the job that I found difficult to understand. I'm not alone in this. Catherine's excitement was surprising to her co-workers as well, 
They recalled Catherine enjoying watching the process of the slaughtering from beginning to end. Catherine would often stay after her shift to gaze at the different assembly lines at work. This was strange to her co-workers, but they figured that it was just Catherine's way. Catherine Knight and her twin sister were born in Aberdeen, New South Wales on October 24, 1955. Even before Catherine's birth, her home life was marred by conflict and scandal. Her parents, Barbara and Ken, were married to other people when they first met. They conducted their affair in secret before leaving their respective spouses and children to run away together and to start a new family. Right from the beginning, Catherine's home life was difficult. Her father, Ken, was an abusive alcoholic. His rages were legendary and he would often rape his wife repeatedly. Catherine was exposed to this abuse through her mother, who wasn't shy about sharing the details with her young daughter. Barbara felt it was important to teach Catherine that it was her duty to suffer sexual acts from men without complaint. Years later, after Catherine was arrested, she claimed that she was sexually abused until the age of 11, never by her father, but by her older brothers, who were from her parents' first marriages. Her family confirms that this abuse probably did take place. Other than her twin sister, Catherine had one other ally in her family, Oscar Knight, who was her uncle, and the two were very close. By all accounts, Catherine adored Oscar. When he committed suicide in 1969, Catherine was just 14 years old and she never quite recovered from his death. She even claims that his spirit still haunts her to this day. At school, Catherine wasn't particularly a good student. She struggled with reading and writing, but nobody dared make fun of her because they knew what the consequences would be. Catherine was always tall for her age and big bone for a female. She'd use her physique as a tool to intimidate the smaller children. She enjoyed towering over them and would fly into violent rages over the smallest mishaps or slights. Catherine, while close to her twin sister, was a loner who didn't have any other close friends. Most of her peers knew to keep their distance, especially after she harmed a younger student with a weapon and was injured by a teacher who was acting in self-defense. But it was also said that Catherine had a different side to her as well. She could be sweet, funny, charismatic, and helpful, and these qualities earned her several awards at school. Catherine struggled academically, and when she left school at the age of 15 for her dream job at the abattoir, it was said that she was nearly illiterate. Catherine was a fantastic worker at the slaughterhouse, and it didn't take long for her to get promoted from an awful worker to a deboner. Her new position came with a set of butcher knives, and she was so proud of her knives that she hung them above her bed where she could gaze at them before she fell asleep each night. The knives so readily at her disposal gave her comfort and a sense of security while she slept. This was a habit that she employed at every home she occupied. Catherine was well known in the small town of Aberdeen. She was a tough broad with a foul mouth who liked to drink at local bars and would challenge anyone to fight if they had an issue with her. Her reputation wasn't all bad, though. It was said that Catherine could be funny, charming, and that men were attracted to her. In 1973, when Catherine was 17, she met David Collette. The couple soon became inseparable. Catherine, who stood several inches taller than Collette, 
always had her man's back. Whenever a fight at the bar became physical, Catherine was quick to jump in and help Colette take down whoever had offended him. However, their romance wasn't always a bed of roses. The two fought horribly, and with little reason. Catherine was domineering and controlling of Colette. She was terrified that he would eventually cheat on her. Nonetheless, the couple decided to marry in 1974. Together, they arrived at the ceremony, both drunk, on a motorcycle with Colette riding bitch while Catherine drove. Wedding bliss didn't last long. On the night of their wedding, Colette woke up to the pressure of Catherine's strong hands around his throat. She was upset that he had fallen asleep without having sex with her five times that she required. Colette didn't understand, as he pried his new bride's fingers away from his neck, he tried to explain that he felt the three times that they did have sex was sufficient. Not long after the couple was married, Catherine became pregnant. During a violent argument when she believed Colette was having an affair, Catherine smacked him over the head with a frying pan and burned all his clothes. The police wanted Colette to press charges, but he refused. He knew that soon Catherine would return to her normal, charming, loving self once she cooled down, and besides, she was pregnant with her first child. Colette stayed in the marriage until 1976, when Catherine's fears of her husband leaving her for another woman became reality. Colette claimed he could no longer handle her temper, and he and his mother moved to Queensland with his new girlfriend to escape Catherine. And this is the first time that Catherine lost her mind. The day after Colette left her, Catherine was seen pushing a stroller down the street of the downtown area of Aberdeen. She was thrashing the stroller back and forth, throwing it in front of the cars that slowed down to have a look at the tall, red-headed lady engulfed with rage. The police were called, and Catherine was placed in a mental institution where she was diagnosed with postpartum depression. Catherine was quickly released from the hospital. Two months later, Catherine had another breakdown. Only this time, her actions were much more sinister. Catherine placed her baby daughter on some train tracks before heading into town, where she stole an axe, and I just can't help but wonder why she didn't just use one of her butcher knives, and began threatening people as they walked by. Luckily, after hearing a baby crying, a local elderly man found Catherine's daughter before the afternoon train was due. Catherine was arrested, but was sent back to the hospital, where she signed herself out the very next morning. A few days later, Catherine kidnapped a local woman. She slashed this woman's face before demanding to be driven to find Colette. But before Catherine could get on the road to Queensland, she had one stop to make. She forced her hostage to drive to the local gas station, where Colette had gotten his car serviced before leaving her. Catherine intended to kill the mechanic who worked on her husband's car that enabled his getaway. The hostage managed to escape once the car pulled into the gas station. When the police were called, Catherine took another victim, this time a little boy. While she held a knife to the child's throat, the police poked and prodded at her with a broom handle, like she was a rabid animal to get her to release the boy. Catherine eventually let the child go, and she was arrested and sent back to the mental hospital. There she told her doctors that it was her intention to drive to Queensland to murder Colette, his mother, and new lady. When Colette heard about his wife's plan, he decided that she needed his support. Colette and his mother returned to Aberdeen, 
when Catherine was released just two months later. The couple returned to their home, and in 1980, they welcomed a second daughter. In 1984, after all that effort to win her husband back, Catherine left Colette to move into her own house. Catherine decorated her new home with animals' bones and hides, skulls and pitchforks, weapons, and hunting traps. Her collection was so vast that there was hardly any free space in the rooms, and soon after Catherine had her own place, she lost the job that she loved so dearly due to a back injury. However, she was able to support herself and her two daughters from her disability check. Overall, life was okay for Catherine, even if the neighborhood kids dared each other to peek into her windows to check out the bones and skulls that hung on her walls. In 1986, Catherine met David Saunders, a local miner, and the two quickly fell for each other. Catherine desperately wanted Saunders to move in with her, but he was hesitant. He spent most of his nights at Catherine's house, and she had no reason to believe that he wasn't being faithful to her, but this wasn't enough for Catherine. Soon into the relationship, Catherine became overwhelmed with jealousy. She'd get aggressive and would beat on him and tell Saunders to leave her house. Since he kept his own apartment, he was able to do so, but it was never long before Catherine would come begging at his door for him to return to her home, and Saunders always did. A year into the relationship, Saunders still had not officially moved in with Catherine, and this continued to enrage her. She was convinced that Saunders was seeing other women, even though there was no evidence of that. One night when Catherine was in one of her rages, she took Saunders' dingo puppy and killed it in front of him to show him what would happen if she ever discovered that he was stepping out on her. I'd like to jump in here for a second to note that it took me several minutes just to type what Catherine did to that poor puppy. I found it to be extremely disturbing. So the fact that Saunders stayed with her afterwards is mind-boggling to me. But stay with her, he did. Then, in 1988, when Catherine fell pregnant... She got her wish. Saunders formally moved in with her, and the couple moved to another home where Catherine employed her decorating skills once again. The couple welcomed a daughter, and for a time, things were okay. However, this domestic bliss did not last long. During an intense argument, Catherine struck Saunders with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. After this, Saunders left Catherine and took a leave of work and went into hiding. Catherine looked everywhere for him. She demanded his friends tell her where he'd gone, but no one would say where he was. A few months later, Saunders reemerged. He wanted to see his daughter and probably knew he couldn't hide forever from Catherine. When he went back home, he learned that Catherine had taken out an apprehended violence order, which is the equivalent of a restraining order that we have here in the States. After Saunders went into hiding, Catherine went to the police saying she was afraid of him. We know now that she wasn't afraid of him. Sounds like she wasn't really afraid of anyone. Rather, she was hoping that the police would tell her where Saunders was hiding. Luckily for Saunders, by the time he came out of hiding, Catherine had moved on to another man. John Chillingworth was a co-worker of Catherine's at the slaughterhouse. The two actually had a decent relationship, comparatively speaking, for three years. In 1991, the couple welcomed a son. Catherine, who was always so paranoid that her men were cheating on her, was ironically having an affair with another man during the last year that she lived with Chillingworth. When Catherine left Chillingworth for John Price, he was devastated when he really should have been thankful. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. John Price, or Pricey as his friends called him, was very well liked in the town of Scone, which is a local area near Aberdeen. Scone has a population of only 5,000 people, so it's a small community and the locals are familiar with each other. Price had previously been married and had three children. The two older kids lived with him after his divorce in 1988. Price was well aware of Catherine's violent reputation. It seems like most people in their small town knew of Catherine's abusiveness towards her men. Her behavior was somewhat legendary. This didn't stop Price from falling for her charm, and in 1995, the couple moved in together. The relationship between Catherine and Price suited them for a while. Price had a good job, he made decent money, working at the local mine, the children got along well, and life was fairly normal for the blended family. However, since we are discussing Catherine Knight, the relationship was quickly hindered by violent episodes. She was very abusive towards him. She smacked him around whenever she suspected he was cheating on her or when he wasn't living up to her expectations. Their volatile relationship made their friends uncomfortable. Price had been a popular guy before getting involved with Catherine, and he had a good reputation as a hard worker. People would often express their concerns to Price about the abuse that Catherine inflicted upon him. Not long into the relationship, Catherine began to pressure Price into marriage. He wasn't interested. The couple lived together and he was loyal to her, but he refused to make it official which infuriated Catherine. Considering that Price had recently gone through a divorce shortly before meeting her and compounded with Catherine's reputation, most people can understand why he was hesitant to a lifelong commitment. Not Catherine, though. In 1998, Catherine and Price got into a humongous argument over this issue, and once again, Price stayed firm and he would not marry Catherine. This time, Catherine didn't resort to her typical violence. Instead, she made a recording of various items that Price had stolen from work, 
And I'm using the word stolen somewhat loosely because the items that he took had been discarded and had been thrown away because they were expired. But nevertheless, due to company policy, Price's boss, upon seeing the video, had to fire him. And Price was devastated because he had worked for this company for 17 years. Sad. It didn't take long for the locals to hear about what Catherine had done this time to her man. And everybody felt terrible for Price. They knew him to be a good worker and a good father and overall a good guy who didn't deserve what was happening to him. Many believed that this would be the end of the relationship for the two, and for a time it was. Price threw Catherine out of his home and ended the relationship with her, but like a persistent rash, she just wouldn't go away, and eventually wore Price down because that was part of Catherine's charm. Despite her vindictive behavior, she could also be quite charismatic. When she was happy, she was a model partner. She cooked, and she cleaned, and she was loyal to her man, and she always enjoyed sex. Over time, she wore Price down, and he took her back, although he set strong boundaries in the relationship and refused to let her move back in with him, which infuriated Catherine. With Catherine back in Price's bed, his friends also drew a strong line. They told him that as long as he was with Catherine, that they could no longer socialize with him. They told him once he was free of her, they would happily return, but as long as he was in the relationship, he was on his own. Obviously, Catherine wasn't too pleased that Price wouldn't let her move back in with him. As usual, she'd express her displeasure by beating him. This domestic abuse lasted for another two years. In 2000, Knight and Price had their last argument. The couple began arguing, and I couldn't find what they were fighting about, but I think it's safe to assume it was over one of Catherine's issues like her lack of trust or her wanting to move back in with him. Now, Price was used to Catherine assaulting him, and at this point they had been together for five years, and those years were riddled with violence. But throughout the month of February, the fighting increased along with the violence until Catherine stabbed Price in the chest. He survived the stabbing and gained a resolve to break off his relationship with Catherine. He told his friends it was one thing to be beat, but it was quite another thing to be stabbed. On February 29th, 2000, yes, it was a leap year, we checked, Price stopped by the local magistrate's office for a restraining order against Catherine. Before leaving for work that same day, he told his co-workers that if something happened to him, it would be Catherine's fault. His co-workers pleaded with him not to go home, but he refused, saying that his children, who were in their mid-teens at this point, needed him there in case Catherine came to the house. His co-workers were shocked when they heard that Price was afraid that if Catherine found him gone, that she would actually kill his children. Upon arriving home, Price was relieved to find that Catherine was nowhere to be seen. However, he sent his children to go stay the night at a friend's because he knew Catherine could show up at any moment. Price spent the evening with his neighbors, chatting, having some beers, and overall enjoying the company. Although I can't help but wonder if he was nervous to be at the house alone. Around 11 p.m., Price returned home and went to bed. He was asleep when Catherine arrived. Catherine let herself in, turned on the television to unwind before taking a shower. Afterwards, she slipped into a black lace nightie before crawling into bed with Price. In the morning, Price's neighbors were concerned, a bit fearful even, when they saw Price's truck in the driveway after 6 a.m. They knew what time Price had to be at work, and it was unusual for him to still be at home that late in the morning. When Price didn't arrive at work, his co-workers knew that this wasn't a good sign. Both Price's neighbors and co-workers alerted the police to do a wellness check. So during these next few moments, we will be relating what the police found when they went to the Price's residence. 
It's graphic, disturbing, and the reason that Catherine Knight was the first woman to receive life imprisonment without the chance of parole in Australia. We spend a lot of time researching true crime, but had a tough time reading about the details of this case, so just feel free to jump ahead while we're describing the crime scene. When the police arrived to Price's house, they were confronted with a pool of blood on the front porch. The door and the steps were all smeared with blood. Upon seeing the amount, the police knew that they were about to discover a murder. What they didn't anticipate was the horrific nature of the crime. The police followed the trail of smeared blood into the living room. At first, they were confused by the loose, bloody pelt that hung from the large hook attached to the ceiling. They moved closer for a better look, but recoiled when they realized that what greeted them was the skin of an adult man. This man had been paired from head to toe with a single slice. They knew the skin belonged to a man. That was evident by the tuft of short black hair at the top and by the genitals down below. The police were horrified as they continued their search. The hallways were soiled with drying blood. It was evident that the man had tried to escape his killer. His bloody footprints told the story of the frantic dash towards the front door. The police were looking for the skinned man's body as they entered the kitchen. They were stunned to find that blood dripped from the kitchen walls, countertops, and the fridge. Upon the stove was a large covered pot. It was still warm to touch. Inside was a soup of onions, carrots, celery, and the head of the victim. But this wasn't the end of the crime scene. Laid upon the table was a feast. Potatoes, zucchini, pumpkin, and meat smeared with gravy was arranged on two plates. Besides each plate were place cards bearing the names of Price's children. In the center of the table was a note full of spelling errors that read, Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You too, Beck. For Russ, little John, now play with John's dick, John Price. I'm not too sure the meaning of that note. I just read it the way she wrote it. The police could only surmise what kind of meat was being served. They continued on with their search. In the backyard was another plate. Whoever sat down to eat must have decided that they didn't have an appetite after all and threw the plate out. Deeper in the house, the police found what was left of John Price's body. His legs were crossed and his skinless arms cradled a liter of soda. Next, the police found Catherine, close to dead. She had taken an assortment of drugs, hoping that she wouldn't survive, but she did. Although Catherine claims to have little memory of the murder, the police were able to piece together what happened that evening. After Catherine slipped into bed with Price, they had sex and Price fell back asleep. He woke up when Catherine started stabbing him and he tried to break free, but due to the amount of blood coating the walls, he did manage to make his way towards the front door, but didn't escape. He made it out the front door, but fell from the amount of blood he was losing. Catherine dragged him back inside and continued to stab him with one of her beloved butcher knives. And Price had a total of 37 stab wounds. 
Thankfully, Price was dead when Catherine skinned him and decapitated him. After the autopsy, it was determined that the skinning process took about 40 minutes and was expertly done. After Catherine skinned and beheaded him, she prepared a feast. She made the soup and cut off pieces of Price to roast. At some point during the night, Catherine drove to an ATM to withdraw $1,000 from Price's account. Police believe that the plate found outside was for Catherine, although there's no evidence that she ate the meal that she prepared. Once Catherine was revived from her self-induced coma, she was arrested for murdering John Price. Naturally, everyone was utterly astounded by the brutality of the murder. They weren't necessarily surprised that Catherine killed Price. It was that what she did to his body afterwards that was shocking. The policemen who first arrived on the scene were issued personal leave and given therapy. They maintained that they continued to struggle with what they witnessed that day. Photos and videos of the crime have been locked away as well for fear that the horrific nature will be too disturbing for people to see. When preparing for Catherine's trial, the judge gave the potential jury members a chance to opt out of serving due to the nature of the crime. Five people took him up on this offer, and more followed after hearing the details and viewing the photos of the crime. The Australian newspapers were cautious with what they reported. Initially, many of the details were left out of the papers for fear of how the public would react. Catherine pleaded not guilty to the murder. She and her lawyers asked for the charge of manslaughter. Their defense was that Catherine had been suffering from dissociative disorder and borderline personality disorder, which everyone agreed that she most likely did suffer from. But the court denied Catherine's request of manslaughter and charged her with first-degree murder, to which Catherine pleaded not guilty. Her lawyers were planning to highlight Catherine's possible mental illness as her defense. But for some reason, Catherine on the day the trial was to begin, switched her plea from not guilty to guilty. No explanation has been given to why she changed her mind. This change does not signify a change of heart. Catherine showed no remorse and gave no reason why she butchered Price. Regardless, I'm sure the jury members were relieved to be dismissed from this case. During the hearing, Catherine's lawyers asked a judge if she could be spared from hearing about the gory details of what she did to Price since she continued to maintain not remembering the skinning, beheading, and the feast she prepared. The judge denied this request. When the photos and description of the murder was presented in court, Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. On November 8, 2001, the judge sentenced Catherine Knight to spend the rest of her life in prison without the possibility of parole. He stated that due to the violent nature of the crime and the lack of remorse and responsibility on Catherine's part that under no circumstance is she ever to be released back into society. As we noted before, Catherine Knight is the first woman in the history of Australia to receive this sentence. In June of 2006, Catherine, amazingly, tried to appeal her sentence believing that life in prison was too harsh of a penalty for the crime she committed. That following September, Justice McKellen threw out her appeal by saying, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation of civilized society. I can't say I disagree with the man, I'll admit. I may be about 10,000 miles away from Australia, but knowing that Catherine Knight will remain behind bars till her death makes me feel a little bit better after researching and writing about the deranged murder she committed. 
Yeah, you weren't lying when you said that this case was crazy, Nicole. Uh, I I honestly feel for her because I think she just desperately needed mental health treatment. She had, you know, a rough start. That doesn't excuse any of her actions. And she left a lot of victims, I think, in her wake. The sheer brutality of these crimes is really hard for me to wrap my head around. You know, so I feel bad for her children and John Price's children who had to deal with the aftermath of her carnage and how she like looped them into it. It just it's awful to think about. And I had not actually heard of this case before or I had heard of it before, but I hadn't read really anything about it. I recognized the name, but Mm -hmm. I didn't read any of the details. So that was a shock as well. I think it's a shame that a lot of Catherine's actions against her partners wasn't really treated as, you know, domestic violence or spousal abuse, really. Right. I mean, that is what it is. Yeah. Like clear cut. But I think sometimes we see it differently if it's you know, partner violence committed against a man that's done by a woman that I think is really unfortunate. Yeah, I'm floored by the sheer brutality of this woman, all the things leading up to her killing Price. I mean, why wasn't she in jail for the numerous other crazy and psychotic crimes she committed? And as you said, calling her domestic violence against her spouses. I think this case will be one that sticks with me for a while. It was pretty gruesome. Yeah, I had never heard of Catherine Knight until recently. Um, And I was shocked that she wasn't arrested before the murder of John Price as well. And I'll admit, while researching and writing about this case, I kept asking myself why Colette and Saunders and Price stayed with her for as long as they did. And what was wrong with them for taking her back? I was like, you stupid fools. But then I realized how biased that thinking was. I had to ask myself if the victims were women I probably wouldn't have thought that at all. But since they were men, it it did take me a minute to realize, no, that this is serious domestic abuse. So this case made me understand that not only a bias that I had, but I think one that a lot of people may also have. Think about it. Had Catherine been a man, people would have taken the abuse way more seriously. She probably would have gone to jail when she held that little boy hostage I did some digging, and the National Coalition Against Domestic Abuse estimates that 24% of all abuse reported is where men are the victim, but they suspect that that percentage is much higher. It's just that men are less likely to report abuse by their partners. As a society, there is a double standard, and I think that there are some lack of resources and support for male victims, which is a real shame. But thank you so much for having me back on this month. I hope that you and the listeners enjoyed this episode. I always enjoy the time I spend with you misconduct ladies. So until next time. And we have a bunch of five-star reviews to shout out. Thank you, Isrita and Gia98 for your feedback. You guys are the best. Reviews like this help other people find the podcast and help us grow. If you're liking the show, please let us know and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We also have a new Patreon donor to thank, so thank you to Nadia for your pledge. You guys help make the podcast possible, and your support just means the world to us. So if you're interested in becoming a supporter or you want to check out our merch, head over to patreon.com slash misconductpodcast. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. Hop on over and let us know what you think of Catherine Knight and today's case. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. 
We also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen to more of their music. And if you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you guys next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.